Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Hi, Cameron. Great to talk with you again. Yeah, it's great to be back uh, chatting again, Jonathan. And uh, we're back for a new season because you have finally completed the writing of your new book. Um, is there anything at all you can say about it at this stage? Uh, I can, actually. The book is called The Great Housing Hijack, and uh, you'll be able to buy it uh, pre-ordering in a week or two, and it will be released at the end of February. And it's all about uh, many of the stories and myths in the housing policy debate, and it, and it uh, arms the reader with some better uh, ways of understanding the economics of housing. Uh, so mm. I think it's, I would have loved it to be done uh, six months earlier, but uh, I think it's it's much better than it would have been had I rushed it. And uh, I look forward to seeing the responses when it comes out uh, early next year. I saw some quite kind of funny bickering about when you were saying uh, recently that you know rents are pretty much the same as a proportion of income and that upset people. Yeah, yeah, no, that's been one of my big points uh, that uh, people are complaining about rising rents. But of course, the reason rents are rising is predominantly because incomes are rising. And so if you take the rent to income ratio, it's been pretty much a flat line for 25 years or more. Um, and I think we we often forget these bigger uh, economic forces at play. We just see what happened in the last six months and think that's going to continue forever. So yeah, some people have a bit of trouble digesting uh, the facts and and taking a bit of a broader lens to the problem. And that's what the book's all about. I suppose it doesn't mean that if average incomes are going up, doesn't mean everyone's incomes going up. So of course, there are going to be some people who are very uh, disadvantaged by rising rents. Yeah, well, that's um, that's the core core part of the book, the symmetry of property markets, I call it, that uh, if you own housing, for example, of course, rising rents are great for you if you're a, a landlord. Um, and so, you know, every every sort of benefit in the housing market is a cost to it to someone else. Um, and and that really sets the tone for all the political discussions that we have. All right. So um, I wanted to start this season off with something that I've noticed um, out there because an organisation that I belong to, the Council for Civil Liberties, is actually doing a submission on it. And it's a Senate, a private senator's bill, which is about um, uh, climate change and the duty of care uh, we have to future generations. And so it's, it's Senator David Pocock, who's the ex-footballer who won a Senate seat in Canberra in the Australian Capital Territory, and he's got this private senator's bill, which is under consideration at the moment. Um, it's before a committee you know, asking for submissions. And basically, it's going to require decision makers to consider, you know, take into account the health and well-being of children in Australia when making significant decisions. And it would require the decision maker, that's the minister usually, not to make significant decisions in relation to the exploration or extraction of coal, oil or natural gas if the decision poses a material risk of harm to the health and well-being of children in Australia, um, which to me raises all sorts of interesting questions. Um, mm. I mean, this came about from a, a federal court case 
where a bunch of high school kids took the previous government to court, arguing that approving an extension to a coal mine, this Vickery coal it was, um, in New South Wales, that that was a breach, That to approve that would be a breach of the duty of care to future generations. And mm. because of the effects of the physical harm that would, in the form mm. of personal injury from climate change, mm. and they asked for basically the court to order that that coal mine should not be uh, approved to be expanded, yeah? And wow. um, a, a very adventurous federal court judge at first found in favour of the plaintiffs, of the, of the high school kids, and the minister appealed and last year was overturned, that judgment was overturned by three judges of the full court who agreed with the minister that this was, uh, that the you know, law of negligence and duty of care was not the way to achieve this result and there was no duty that the minister had to future generations uh, when we're thinking about approving a coal mine extension. I don't know, I'm always a bit suspicious when you when we're talking about policy proposals or political programs that are supposed to be, you know, that you're supposed to automatically read off from these very abstract principles like, you know, human rights or the rights of the mm. child or the right to health or just really abstract high-level things like that. Just the idea that, you know, there's a very specific program or policy agenda that you can just automatically read off from it I find very, I find very unconvincing. Um, I think yeah. it's just a trick where you can just import any idea you want and just say, oh, it's it's because of the, the convention on the rights of the child. And so is what you're trying to say that there's a, a gap between the um, the big picture idea of the right and the nuts and bolts implementation of what that means and how to judge whether there's a harm to future generations and whether, how to judge whether what a specific action is related to it. So yeah, too many so big ideas variables. smuggle in. Yeah, they smuggle in almost anything, depending on who wants to sort of test out these broadly written laws. Is that the sort of point you're making? That's yeah, that's one of them. There are others, but like yeah. I'm just curious <laughs> about the economist take on this because my my kind of uh, my opposition to it is kind of unformed. It's not very well defined so i'd right. like to know what an economist would how an economist sees the idea that oh we should do x or we shouldn't do x because we think that at some future point that will be a bad thing for generation you know, such and such yeah look i think mostly economics um doesn't deal with uncertainty as well as you'd think um, but there are parts of economics that do. And, for example, one big debate in economics is is the question of discounting the future generations. So even if we know there might be a harm in the future, how do we compare? Um, and another sort of uh, lens of economics that I think is probably relevant here is just quantifying the magnitude of the harm. Um, so typically economists look at the marginal benefit of for example, opening that coal mine in terms of uh, the incomes in Australia, what, however that benefit is distributed, 
um, the people who work there, uh, the royalties from extracting the coal, uh, the incomes to shareholders of that company and how that flows through the economy. So there's a benefit there that needs to be considered. And then there's also a cost. And if you're thinking the cost only in terms of you know, the climate, then you're looking at the marginal cost only, like how much different is the temperature going to be if this coal mine opens compared to if it didn't? And even then, are there offsetting effects? Like if this one doesn't open and you know, maybe the coal price is a fraction higher than it used to be, maybe that's enough to get another potential coal mine in another country out of the ground and make it viable, mm. right? Yeah. And so even, you know, step one, you know, step one in any case, they're, they're torts, right? So that's the duty of care and whether someone was negligent and, and caused harm. This is the sort of class of question we're looking at, right? Mm. The first question is determining harm. And here, like it's step one is super, super difficult, <laughs> right? Um, how do you quantify the harm from opening one more coal mine on planet Earth with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of coal mines in 2023 to an Australian child born today who might live another 80 years and the temperature and the concentration of methane, carbon dioxide, whatever might, you know, is there even a decimal point that shows the difference? Well, they uh, that we could use? in that court case that the, the, there was a difference, that they said it was a tiny but measurable increase in global average surface temperatures, specifically from the 100 million tonnes of CO2 that would probably be attributable to burning the coal from the expansion of the coal mine. You know what I mean? Like they were trying that argument. Yeah, wow. And um, I, I'm just wondering though, like what, what if what if there's a technology that's invented that captures the carbon from that technology? I, I know this is like uh, maybe unlikely, but I'm just trying to see like, okay, and I know it's a bad argument to say, oh, yeah, but like all these other countries around the world are much more responsible than like if everyone makes that argument in the tragedy of the commons scenario, mm -hmm. of course, nothing happens, nothing changes. So I know mm -hmm. that what I'm saying is not ethically great. Right? Look, I, I think you're right. So economists, uh, you know, your point you just made of um, what if something changes, right? What if we have a new technology that makes the whole thing redundant? That is a huge question, and that is yeah, there, a long time ago in economics, there was a debate between what's uncertainty and what's risk, right? What's risk is in terms of the margin of error or the distribution of known outcomes, and what's uncertainty as in the, the unknown unknowns, <laughs> Yeah, I guess. And, and the fact that the world exists with unknown unknowns, not just what we know today, and the uncertainty around the measurements of this future harm. But there's also this radical uncertainty or true uncertainty that, you know what, anything could change between now and then. And the longer we wait before imposing costs on ourselves, the more opportunity we have to open ourselves to the positives of that uncertainty, the more opportunities we have to reduce that uncertainty and, you know, try new technologies, try lower cost things before we've committed to it. So the buying time, this is why, for example, um, in property development, you stage projects into small bits 
because you want to buy time. You don't want to build it today when the market might change or you don't know, right? You don't know if the market's going to go up or down. You might know probabilistically you don't know what people want to buy. So you buy yourself time. You do a little bit now and then you wait and see if it worked and see if there's anything new uh, that you should incorporate in your decision. And then you mm -hmm. go and you do it again. And so I think if you want to deal with this intertemporal duty of care and you don't acknowledge that between now the action and 50 or 100 years the harm things might change so radically that the harm doesn't exist or what we thought was a harm becomes a benefit even you know i don't think you're having an honest discussion about mm -hmm. that and not i'm not saying i know the answer or that we should ignore you know irreversible damage to to the planet i'm just saying we need to be honest that this thing called uncertainty exists and that should make us be more cautious, right? Mm -hmm. When we try and impose these costs today for very risky and very uncertain and very long-term benefits. I should also say that this particular bill that we're talking about is probably going to do nothing because all it oh. does is say, even if they pass it, like all it does is say that the decision maker has to consider the well-being and the health of future, uh, current and future Australian children. So I know what's going to happen. The minister, when faced with a decision, will just go, yeah, I considered it. Thanks. And just do the bad decision anyway. Um, so you're saying, even from a legal perspective, this is written in such a way as to um, allow no change, but to yeah. have the appearance of substantial change, but by being written down, almost opens future other avenues for creative litigation for interest groups. I don't know. Do I, think? I, I just don't know. I, don't I just, know. you know, like the, we've got an experience already with the human rights um, compatibility statement. Like every law that the Australian Parliament, every bill that's considered by the Australian Parliament has to be accompanied by a statement of compatibility with human rights. And even the most horrendous breach, what I consider breaches of basic human rights, just sail through with this lovely statement saying it's compatible with human rights. So the minister's going yeah. to be like, yeah, yeah, I considered all the factors and, and uh, you know, I still think that it's beneficial on the whole, even though there might be some downsides. That gets to sort of another sort of expression of this uncertainty problem, right? You know, the minister's just going to use their judgment at the end of the day, right? I, Correct. I considered it, but in my judgment, I don't, I don't, either trust this person's claim or I, I think, you know, who knows the future, so I'll just discount it in my mind or I'll internalise this idea of buying time. But there's just fundamentally this, what I would call a knowing question, like, you know, requiring consideration of unknowable things mm -hmm. is quite a weird challenge, don't you think? And I like to think, for example, you know, to put it plainly, I don't know what generations 100 years from now in 2123 will actually think about the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And I, I don't know if they will even be concerned as concerned as we are, given typical uh, improvements in technology and economic development of all sorts. Um, you know, maybe it's the case there's a, you know, a hypothetical world where uh, they want higher carbon dioxide concentrations because they're relying on more rapid plant growth to feed themselves. There's a kind of 
um, soylent green future that could exist. I don't know mm. where uh, they require that to help um, you know, with plant growth. And, and it's easy to see how bizarre this knowing question is. If we cast our mind back 100 years and we're sitting in 1923, uh, roaring 1920s, trying to consider in a legal case in 1923, uh, what's best for the people living in 2023 when it comes to uh, policies around petroleum or mining for gold or anything like that, right? What was the horses or, example or, you talked about? You know, imagine in 1923, someone used one of these laws and creatively said, oh, we really need to impose these big costs on society because... Um, uh, we need to preserve places for horses to be fed in the cities because people in 2023, uh, if we don't preserve these places for them now uh, and, and impose these costs, then people in 2023 won't have anywhere to park their horses or feed their horses in the big cities when the cities grow, right? Mm, yeah. So they're sort of extrapolating the current pattern with no change, no uncertainty, in 100 years into the future and saying, look, if we don't do this now, all those people trying to ride their horses around the city in 2023, well, you know, there'll be such big costs on them. It'll stifle their economic growth and well-being that we must consider this today. Uh, we have a duty of care, right? It would make no sense. I mean, at the time, we'd only just invented powered flight. No one thought that was possible. We'd only just realized that things called viruses exist. Before that, we didn't even know why people got sick. And we still didn't even know uh, for another decade or more uh, that nuclear fission was possible. And we're expected, you know, we need to be more honest about the limits to our knowledge that we are living in the 1923 of the next century's generations where we don't know anything either. And we don't know what they want. And we're here trying to sort of second guess or predict or, or trick ourselves into knowing what the world's going to be like in 100 years. Yeah. I just find there's some kind of, what would I call it, confidence trick. There's some kind of snobbery mm -hmm. to that that I think cannot be justified. If that there's, makes a, sense. there's a geographer called Mike Hulme, or I don't know how to pronounce his name, H-U-L-M-E. Uh, and he's, mm -hmm. he's got a book out and, and, and he's written a lot of articles on climatism and how climate has become sort of fetishized and sort of narrowly sort of pulled out of context and, and, and also completely um, overtaken other real ecological concerns. And I could make a very radical ecological argument about, well, why only the human health effects of oil, gas, and coal resulting in increased carbon. Well, what about all the fisheries that are going extinct? What about the, the loss of animal life and trees that are continuing to be cut down? Why this one measure? Why only that one? And also I can see that what it's trying to do is to kind of make some kind of radical systemic change but because it's it's trying to do it through the existing parliamentary mechanisms in our liberal capitalist system so it's this square peg in a round hole you, you can't get radical system change from within our our current system so what you do is you you pick some technical decision that a minister has to make mm. and then you 
you create some mechanism that they have to consider X and Y, which doesn't really change anything. It doesn't change the fact that Vickery Coal is out there looking to expand its profits and there's no mechanism to say, no, sorry, you, you, you can't do that anymore. You know, they're not changing company law to say you've yeah, got to, you've got to, you know, change yeah. you, you're not allowed to, uh, you know, search for expanded profits in ways that Look, harm the environment. I agree that um, it's a very narrow approach um, to system change. It's like, a, how do we slide this in somewhere? Um, and I can see it from the perspective of someone who thinks climate change is the number one human concern and daylight second mm -hmm. that intervening in this type of way for your one true cause makes a lot of sense and i think it would be effective right if we said no new coal mines well that's a very direct way to have less coal burnt i think mm -hmm. um it, uh, to be honest actually i'm gonna i'm gonna walk that back mm. it's it's in a direct way to not have that coal burnt I'm not sure if there are offsetting effects elsewhere in the world or in the Australian economy. For example, maybe other mines that are approved can mine slightly faster, you see, um, and they yeah. are, if they have enormous reserves, the, you know, the, the point in which those reserves become uneconomical and the effect of banning the new one kicks in could be decades away. And then even then, there might be offsetting effects elsewhere in the world, right? I don't think, you know, we can quantify it so easily. Mm. The other thing I think from what you just said about these legal maneuvers and these principles we're trying to use, I think if we agree on the principle, shouldn't we apply it to everything, not just coal mines and climate-related costs? Should mm -hmm. we not also apply it to the potential benefits of um, scientific investment or if we really want to have a low discount rate so we really value the future a lot and we think it's identical to the present then doesn't that also suggest that nuclear power where the costs are very present but the benefits are very far into the future should get a leg up in this type of assessment because yeah, you know, um, the further in the future your costs are with climate change, we need to dis we need to discount those future costs less if we want action today, right? Mm -hmm. But that yeah, also so means to understand, just explain that discounting idea to me. I, I find so that discounting confusing. basically is how much less should we value, uh, for example, uh, the same uh, production at a future time period today. So if I'm going to, uh, you know. Um, the value of having an extra you know, cheaper cars today for today's people versus cheaper cars in 50 years for future people. Uh -huh. Well, you know, that hundred dollars saving per household today, it, we know it's worth exactly a hundred dollars. It can buy exactly a hundred dollars worth of other goods and services, but in the future, we don't know what future goods and services people can buy, what they'll have to give up to get it. And we also don't know how much they'll, desire that option we don't know if things will change so discounting just means how do we package up all that uncertainty about the, about the future and say well the future person's probably not worth as much as today's people because mm -hmm. we're not 100% sure um, you know that they'll get the benefit and we do this in all sorts of stuff right like um, you know when you buy a house you're buying the future infinite flow of um, benefits 
from not having to rent, right? For you and your descendants for the infinite future. But the value isn't infinity, even though the benefits are infinity, because the further ahead in the future we go, we less we account for those benefits today. Mm -hmm. So the discounting is in everything. And um, one of the tricks as an e economist, and all consultant economists know this, is if you have an assessment of the benefit cost of a project, even a, a road or a um, you know public park or a building that might only last 50 years or 100 years, not the climate, which will still be around in 300 years, but it's a long-term but finite period, we know that you spend costs today for benefits in the future. And, and projects where the benefits are further out into the future can be made more attractive by adding up future benefits and present costs by reducing the discount rate, which is yeah. means the amount that we discount the future, we make it less. So if the discount rate was zero, we'd count the future exactly the same as today. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. And so if you've got benefits a long way in the future, you bring the discount rate back to zero, it makes today's investment look good compared uh -huh. to one where the benefits are just like next year or the year after. And so it's a real, it, you know, on most economic assessments, the discount rate is an input and assumption. And uh, depending on the project you're assessing, you if it's got future benefits um, and a lot of cost up front, then you reduce the discount rate to make it look better. <laughs> Right. Whereas if the benefits are much closer to today, um, that you know, if you want that project to look more beneficial, then you increase the discount rate to make that other one that's got a long-term benefit look worse. Yeah. So it's a real um, you can sort of manipulate it. And so the point being, in in the climate debate in particular, people seem to want to have a low discount rate. They want to have future benefits uh, worth quite a lot today to justify action today. Mm -hmm. But if you want to have future benefits worth a lot to justify costly action today, that's true of other costly things like nuclear power that cost a lot today but have very long-term benefits. So it actually, you know, there's no internal consistency in the principle or the logic when it comes to climate, right? If, if the costs are really that bad and really that long, then we should also do the other things like nuclear power, which can get us you know, quite rapidly off, off greenhouse gas emission, emitting fuels. But for some reason, that inconsistency just wanders through all these legal <laughs> cases and never seems to get drawn out. Um, okay, well, well, leave it there for this topic. Um, could you just tell us, we've got a couple of really interesting topics coming up. Do you want to just flag what they are? Yeah, I do. So I've got uh, Aidan Morrison coming on soon to talk about the cost of transitioning to renewables and the CSIRO Gen Cost Report and how he's uh, sort of discovered some weird economics and accounting in some of these really key documents uh, that we are relying on to justify these costs of uh, transitioning to renewables. I've got Tim Helm coming on to talk about you know, the big things people misunderstand about property markets and housing. Uh, and I've got Leith Van Onselen uh, coming on to talk about uh, international students, population growth, and, and the state of uh, the policy debate in Australia and the recent trends in immigration policy in Australia, Canada, and the UK, which all seem to be, you know, oh, yeah. booming in terms of immigration at the moment. 
and, and what he he and I think. Uh, so that's what's in store for the uh, the next month or so. Yeah, and if um, anyone wants to see you speak, um, there's an event called Australians for Science and Freedom Conference, Sydney, November 1819. Um, you can find out more on the Australians for Science and Freedom website, scienceandfreedom.org. And I think you so you're saying this is a new organisation. So anything with the word freedom in it in Australia is going to be right of centre. Am I right? I would assume so. This is the you know going to be a right wing group of people, except for you. Well, you know, I just feel like that's lost all of its um, relevance. This left and right after after COVID. So yeah, the okay. the conference yeah. is on at the University of New South Wales. Uh, 18th and 19th of November, I'll be speaking there on the Sunday afternoon, the, the 19th, about, um, you know, where does science happen and why? Uh, but that's it's more about the, the evolution of academic journals and universities and, and, and my take on, you know, new opportunities in that area. Um, so there's a, an array of different speakers. I'll be there. Yeah. And um, your co-author, Paul Fritters, writers? Well, Freitas will be there. Yeah. yeah. He's also um, trying to start a new uh, university for economics and social science. So there's been a real sort of flight away from the established institutions, real decline in trust, and a lot of people uh, from various sides of politics looking for, you know, an institutional structure in which to be much more honest about these questions, just like the questions we spoke about today of, is it really possible to make a sensible claim about a duty of care to a generation in a hundred years time mm -hmm. through a, a sort of legal decision or not. And, mm -hmm. and what's a more sensible conceptual basis for making decisions today, acknowledging that, yes, sometimes there might be irreversible costs uh, to the planet and to people. So those yeah. I think are the types of discussions uh, we'll have. And I, it, I do find it quite strange that freedom as a word is associated associated with the political right. I always imagine, you know, the hippies of the 1960s. Yeah. Used to be different. With yeah. <laughs> free yeah. free love, freedom man, let's freedom, just let right. it all yeah. go. And yeah. can, we, why you you know stick it to the man. Um yeah. quite quite a bizarre one. Um mm. but yeah I'm looking forward to it. So hopefully uh it sounds really exciting. Yeah. Yeah hopefully I can meet some readers there at the event. Yeah, so come and have a chat to Cameron. That's the that's the that's the selling point. Look forward to seeing you there and uh, talk again soon. Okay, talk soon, Jonathan. Bye.